This is the Sales Gravy Podcast. Hi, I'm Jeb Blunt, best-selling author of Fanatical Prospecting Objections, Sales EQ, and Inc., and I'm here to help you open more doors, close bigger deals, and rock your commission check. Welcome back to another episode of the Sales Gravy Podcast. I'm your host, Ulysses Price, filling in for Jeb Blunt. On this episode, I have the CEO of Connect and Sell, Chris Beal, with me. Connect and Sell is an amazing software service that dramatically cuts down the time salespeople have to spend trying to find and start conversations with prospects and instead delivers those conversations to them so they only have to focus on having the conversations. But before we get started, I want you to go check out SalesGravy University. SalesGravy University is the training engine of choice for individuals, small and scaling sales teams, and large enterprise sales teams that want fresh new content on their learning management systems and sales enablement platforms. We are truly the world's most powerful sales training engine and different from many other online platforms that just have on-demand courses. We have live courses every single week, the same courses that we teach some of our largest clients, plus our mastermind groups and all of our on-demand courses from some of the top minds in sales. All you got to do is just check out salesgravy.com and click on e-learning at the top menu or go to learn.salesgravy.com. That's learn.salesgravy.com. And if you've never taken a course on Sales Gravy University, you can take your very first course for free, any course you want, just by using code FREECOURSE at checkout. Chris Beal, it's so good to have you on the podcast. How Ulysses, are you? Ulysses, it's fabulous, fabulous to be here. So how did you become the CEO of Connect and Sell? Tell us about that journey. Well, essentially what happened was it was actually in the joining that the journey started. So I met Sean McLaren, the CEO of Connect and Sell, at a, a sort of breakfast meeting up at the Rosewood Hotel in Menlo Park, California, where all the VCs hang out. But they don't hang out there at 630 in the morning. So it was nice and quiet. Sean shows up. He elbow bumps me. This is in 2011, way before COVID, and says, I saved your life. You owe me. That's, that's his opening line. And I'm thinking, this is one interesting guy. Actually, he said, connect and sell handshake and elbow bumping. <laughs> so we sat down. He told me what the company was doing. And I said, hang on, Sean. Are you telling me that your company has figured out how to take a process that's a one-at-a-time thing where somebody calls and calls and calls and calls to try to get a hold of somebody. And you've taken that business telephone and you basically reinvented it to not only call in parallel but have all of the dials managed perfectly so that I, as a sales rep, just push a button talk to somebody. And that's what you do? He said, yeah. And I said, so doesn't that lead to an increase in the flow rate of sales conversations like – by a big number, like factor six, seven, eight, nine, ten, He says, yeah. He, he was a man of one-word answers that day, and that's not normally Sean. And I said, well, so doesn't that kind of transform everything about business? Because the only thing that moves the needle in business is a conversation between somebody who might have a problem and somebody who might have a solution to that problem. And you're saying you increase the flow rate of that by a factor of what? And he says, well, 10, actually. I said, so 10. So every sales rep tends, turns into 10 people? He says, yeah. I said, I'm in. He says, what do you mean you're in? I said, I'm in. I'm working for you now. And he, he kind of uh, hemmed and hawed a little bit and said, well, what if I'm not hiring? I said, Sean, it's a free country. I can work for whomever I want. You can decide whether or not you want to pay me. Well, apparently he decided to pay me. Uh, he needed a head of products, so I joined as head of products. And the journey really started with the product. The product was uh, very unique. 
in terms of its capabilities, but it lived as a single application on Windows. And this is in 2011. Well, it needed to move to the cloud somehow. It needed to become a web application. But real-time conversation connections globally through the web, not technically easy. And my background is in building kind of big, hard tech. So most people think, oh, that doesn't sound right. They listen to me talk and say that guy can't be a technologist of any kind. But sad to say, you know, the first million lines of code have left their mark. And so we sort of rebuilt it um, but kept it the same so that it would work on the web. So it was horizontally scaled. That means you can make a lot of kind of units of it, of it and like Salesforce does. When you log in, you're in this one or that one or another one so it can scale without bounds. We added some capabilities to it. And somewhere along the lines, we, our discussion of where the company was going to go got uh, – it sometimes happens where the venture capitalists and management see things differently. And we came to kind of a parting of the ways in 2014. And a result of that was that I was made CEO. So that's how I became CEO. I was never hired to be the CEO, but I was a sort of uh, – what they call that in the military, a field promotion – and uh, or they couldn't spell janitor, so they made me CEO, and that's kind of how that happened. What intrigued me about the company is I'm an aficionado of the market dominance theories and practice of a guy named Jeffrey Moore. Jeffrey Moore wrote a book, Crossing the Chasm. A lot of people have read this book. I figure a lot of people don't really understand it. Crossing the Chasm basically says if you build something new, new tech especially, folks will be repulsed by it. So you'll love it, but regular people will hate it because new stuff kind of makes real people who are trying to solve real problems queasy because they, they're uncertain of it. So you have a problem if you can really solve some big business problem. And this only B2B. I have no interest in B2C. I'm a lousy consumer. I wouldn't trust me to buy you know a tube of toothpaste. But B2B is my thing, and I've always been very intrigued with that relationship between technology innovation and go-to-market. Well, Jeffrey Moore laid it out way long time ago in the early 90s, the how-to, mostly as a how-not-to. And the key is to find somebody who has a broken mission-critical business process and then identify all the somebodies with that process who would influence each other if they were to buy your solution and call that a market. A market actually is defined as those who would influence each other by reducing the cost and risk of the next one like them buying because they bring the confidence by going first and being willing to talk about it. So that theory of market development is actually a theory of market dominance. And Jeffrey Moore in his book, The Gorilla Game, says you must dominate. You must dominate or die. You will be, when you're relegated to second place, you actually serve the first place player. They decide if you live or die. They decide what deals you get. They decide basically how much money you make. And they might buy you after they weaken you enough. Or, you know, there's a lot of games get played at that level of strategy and business. That's where the real game is played. What was fascinating to me is the connection between market dominance, which is the only safe place to go, and what I would call the humble cold call, that first conversation you have with somebody. And nobody would ever connected those dots before in a really clear way. I joined Connect and Sell to connect those dots. 
So tell me, Chris, how did you connect the dots between cold calling and market dominance? Well, for me, it all started with market dominance. So I'm a, I'm a follower, maybe even an acolyte of this guy, Jeffrey Moore, who wrote a book called Crossing the Chasm, explaining to all of us techies why our products don't make it to market. They don't make it to market because we love our tech and regular mainstream customers are repulsed by it. It actually makes them feel somewhat ill. So Jeffrey taught us how to do this step by step a long time ago. And the first step is to make a list of those companies that would be in your first, I'll call it mainstream or early majority market. Having made that list, what do you do? So it's obvious you need to talk to people. You can't talk to companies. So the next thing you would do is you kind of fill out that list with, well, which titles of those companies would be most interested in what it is you have to offer. But then you've got to ask yourself the question, this list, is it a market or is it a hypothetical market? Well, it's a hypothetical market because you haven't tested it. So now you need to test it. So when you go test it, how do you test it? Now, you've got to test it statistically. So I'm going to have an example. Your market consists of hypothetically 10,000 potential customers. That means to test it, you need information that's clean information, reliable information back from about 100 of those. That's the square root of 10,000 for people who like that kind of stuff. And it's a rough way of doing statistics without thinking very hard. And uh, fortunately, calculators tell us what square roots are. and We just kind of come close. So now I've got to have 100 conversations. So this is actually what's going on in my mind is, okay, how do you get to the point of saying, I really believe this is a market? Because I can't dominate a market unless I've identified a market. And I can't identify a market unless I have a list. And then I've got to know who to talk to. But I also need to know what's resonating with them. So on the other side of the process, I turn my message or my product offer, my value, into a simple message. Then I got to be a real challenge. I'm going to reach out and talk to these people. So I'm going to ambush them. So now I have to wrap my message in a psychological wrapper, some sort of framework, so that the message gets through. Because if you just call somebody up with your value message, they're going to reject you not because of the message, but because you called them and ambushed them and they didn't like it. So that turns out to be where it all kind of comes together. I've got to talk to people I've never spoken with before. I need to get a clean read from them as to whether our offer is something that resonates with them. I can only do that in a conversation, by the way. Sending an email to somebody simply, uh, you just find out they don't open their emails, right? That's pretty much it. Or they don't respond to email messages. So i got to kind of get in their midbrain where their emotions are and see if they emotionally res resonate with my message. So I've got to develop a message. And now I've got another problem, which is, well, who's going to deliver it? So I could use a sales rep to do it. And I'm probably going to find out that my sales rep is not that great at delivering such a message. So now I'm actually testing the sales rep rather than testing the market with the message. The message is standing in for my product. I need to deliver it not only in a good psychological package, but I need to deliver it in a high performance package. I call that a calibrated caller. So I need to put the message into the hands and into the brain of a calibrated caller. I, I know one, she works for us, her name's Cheryl Turner. Cheryl can call and get message resonance in anything from big industrial air compressors to heavy lift cranes to commercial real estate to insurance to operating systems for banks. It doesn't matter because she has that feel for what goes on inside of a human being when you ambush them and start talking to them. So 
You get a calibrated rep, and now what do you do? You have 100 conversations. Now, this is where Connect and Sell tends to believe we come in, because to get 100 conversations, you can spend 100 hours in one conversation an hour, or you could get it done in, say, 10 to 20 hours. Big difference. When it comes to getting work like this done, 100 hours will stretch out to two or three weeks. 10 to 20 hours, you can get it done with one person in two or three days. And guess what? You've just tested your market. And if you get a 5% conversation to meeting conversion rate, you're good. That's actually above threshold mathematically for market dominance. Market dominance means 50% of the market plus one have become your customers. So in the case of the 10,000, ultimately you're going for 5,001. Thankfully, you only have to talk to 100 in order to get confident that you can take the 5,001. How do you get that confidence? From a mathematical outcome, which is a 5% or higher conversation and meeting conversion rate with a calibrated caller. Tell us what makes someone a calibrated caller. Well, it's two things. One is they get very comfortable using the psychological framework. I'll call it a script framework. They get good at that. They get comfortable with it. It opens with throwing yourself under the bus. That's a hard one for a lot of people. Then you've got to make your voice playful. That's a hard one for some people. Then you need to go to curiosity instead of value. That one's actually hard because reps are trained to go to value and yet the resonance comes from going to curiosity to see if somebody's curious enough to take a meeting. Then you have to insist they take the meeting. That takes a kind of confidence and belief in the value of the meeting that, again, isn't equal across all reps. And you need somebody who can do the whole thing. So the calibrated caller is somebody who can do all of that, and it doesn't matter what the product is or it doesn't matter what the message is. They're not dependent on the message just a belief in the potential value of the meeting for this human being they're talking with so that they can insist on the meeting. So a calibrated caller is somebody who's proven they can do that, that work in a cold call, what we call an ambush call, and they can do it in any topic area, in any product area. Tell us about the seven-second rule. Well, at the very beginning of a conversation, we've got to get somebody to trust us or we're sort of at sea. We're not going to go very far. Mostly because until they trust us, they're not actually going to listen to anything else that we say other than just for their primary purpose. When we ambush somebody in a cold call, they have one and only one goal, to get off that conversation out of that call with their self-image intact. If they didn't care about their self-image, they'd just hang up. Some people just hang up. But most people, their self-image doesn't include hanging up on somebody they just answered. So you've got them in a little bit of a spot where you're capable of potentially getting trust. And it seems weird to think that you could get trust in seven seconds. I learned about this after we'd been doing it for years. I learned about it from Chris Voss, the author of Never Split the Difference, How to Negotiate as Though Your Life Depends on It. I probably butchered part of the title, but that's good <laughs> enough. And I asked him at dinner one night, how long do we have to get trust in a cold call? And he said, seven seconds, just like that. And I jumped a little. I said, really, our research says eight seconds. And he says, your research is wrong. It's seven seconds. So then I kind of felt good about the fact that I asked him, well, what do we have to do in those seven seconds? And he said, oh, that's easy. All we have to do is help the other party see that we see the world through their eyes. We call it tactical empathy. So they've got to see that. They've got to feel that. And secondly, 
We need to demonstrate to them that we're competent to solve a problem they have right now. I said, right now, right now? And he said, yeah, right now, right now. I said, well, right now, right now, their problem is me. He said, bingo, that's why you can't lose in a cold call. You're in complete control because you can always solve the problem that is you by offering to go away in exchange for something. So what do you want? You want them to, to listen to you. So make that offer. So what we've taught people for years, and we stumbled onto this because one of our reps was doing it, is just to say this. If, I, if you answered and I'm the caller, and so I don't hear you, by the way, with Connect and Sell, I don't get to hear you say, this is Ulysses. I don't get to hear that. It's fortunate it pops up on my screen and tells me who you are, thank goodness, and I get a little bloop in my ear. And I say, Ulysses Crispiel here, Connect and Sell. Hey, I know I'm an interruption. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? And I tried this out on Chris Voss, and he said, perfect. He said, you are hard, flat, threw yourself under the bus, self-indicted right at the beginning. That's what the other party is thinking about you already. That's how they're feeling. You beat them to the punch. Secondly, now that you're under the bus, the thump, the thump, the thump, buses have three axles, then, uh, you know, you, you went to a playful, curious voice, which is actually a name of a voice they use in FBI land. And that voice went up a couple of times and it said, come along with me. Well, come along to where? To solving your problem, the problem being me. Let's solve the me problem. It's going to be fun. You're relieved. You have a little bit of trust. I've, I'm, I have a promise I've made. I now have to fulfill my promise. But that first seven seconds done correctly will get trust every time. And I'll go to a little information science here, information theory. So you're an expert at the world of, of uh, audio recording and all that. So you know that in the audio world, the, the bit rate that it takes to support the human voice with full emotional fidelity is around 20,000 bits a second. An email contains about 5,000 bits of information. So you send somebody an email. If they read it carefully, they get about 5,000 bits of information. When you speak with somebody, you put 20,000 bits, that's four emails per second into their midbrain. In seven seconds, that's seven times four, that's 28 emails that have gone all the way into their emotional centers. That's a lot. That's a lot. And if you have somebody read something, reading is a very, very high-level activity. Seeing is pretty low-level. We can see somebody throw a brick at our head, we're going to duck. That's pretty low-level, right? That goes like brainstem, just like that. So our visual system is wired up to the rest of our body, including our adrenal glands, because we got attacked through all of evolutionary time by bad things, bad people, and, you know, falling off stuff and whatever, and we see the world change suddenly, and we react. Hearing is different. When we're anesthetized, when we're out, when the doctor puts that, you know, count backwards from 100 needle in our arm, and we're getting to 92, and then we're gone, we're still hearing. And we're still hearing directly into our emotional centers. That path doesn't ever turn off. That's why we can notice something when we're asleep that we wouldn't notice otherwise because it's quiet and it'll instantly alert us and we wake up rather suddenly for certain sounds. We are extremely attuned to the emotional significance of stuff coming through our ears. So now we've got the opportunity to put our voice directly into the center of somebody's head and actually probably into that big nerve that runs to their gut called the vagus nerve where they make their decisions, that gut feel nerve. So here we are. 
We're pumping 28,000 bits in seven seconds into their emotional centers. Do it wisely. They trust us. For how long? I asked uh, Chris Foss that. How long? He said, oh, forever, till you blow it. I said, how do you blow it? He says, try selling to them. That'll do it. So now we're in a delicate situation. We have somebody trusting us, which in B2B is essential because eventually they've got to trust us more than they trust themselves because the threshold for B2B sales action is somebody's got to say, well, you're the expert, you're the doctor, I'm the patient, do what you're going to do. I know it's for my own good. So they have to believe you're the expert, the seller, and that you're on their side. Would you go to a doctor to have brain surgery, heart surgery, or even fingernail surgery done if you didn't trust them to be competent and you didn't think they were on your side? No, not at all. Not at all, right? Same position when you're the seller, you're the doctor. So can you get into that position as the doctor? Well, it turns out you have seven seconds to do it. So you've mentioned a lot about the role of the salesperson in B2B sales, such as being able to get that trust in seven seconds. Can you expand more about why the world needs B2B salespeople? Oh, what a grand question. So the world needs B2B salespeople for a simple reason, and that is the risk a buyer is taking. I mean the individual person who is making a buying decision is taking is not a risk of their own money. They're risking their career. So they're extremely, B2B buyers are extremely cautious. And in the general case, you will not win as a seller against their cautiousness. So the B2B buyer looks at the world this way, which is if I screw up, it's really bad. And if I make a good decision, it's kind of okay. That is, it's highly asymmetric. Really bad means my reputation is damaged or shot. So that's my retirement, my kid's college education, my feelings of self-worth, whether my dog will like me when I go home. All of these things are on the line as the buyer. The path of least resistance is to keep on keeping on. That is, you can't sell anything in B2B that somebody isn't already solving. You sell to solve problems that are already being solved. It's impossible otherwise. Like, hi, Ulysses, I want to sell you a solution to a problem that is so unimportant to you that you haven't bothered to solve it. it. Makes no sense, right? So when I'm selling in B2B, I'm always selling an improvement of some sort. Just like patents are like that. And a patent is always an improvement. A B2B sale is always an improvement over a current solution. So the current solution, by definition, is good enough. I have a, it's working today, right? It'll work tomorrow. But there has to be some reason to want to replace it. Say, for instance, it's on an old platform and that platform's burning up, as they say, the burning platform problem. Okay, well, at some point, I need to replace it. So it's not like there's no pressure to go with something new. It's just that pressure is opposed by stark asymmetry when it comes to making a decision, which is the safe decision is no decision. And it's even worse nowadays when there's so much indecision. Many people think the safe decision is the status quo. But what about indecision? What about somebody just having a hard time making a decision because they see too many alternatives? We all know when we have lots and lots of alternatives, it's harder to make a decision. Yesterday here at Sales Gravy, a menu was put in front of me for lunch. If the menu had had three choices on it, I would have chosen one in less than five seconds. But the menu had multiple pages on it and had lots of choices. So it took me a while. And I went back and forth and, ah, do I want the sandwich? Do I just want the salad? 
when are we going to eat dinner? How big is that going to be? There's a bunch of stuff in my head that makes me indecisive about something as simple as lunch. Now, take something as simple as lunch and amplify it to something on which my career depends, primarily if I screw up and make a bad decision, and I can't possibly get enough information to make a good decision because I'm not an expert. I have to trust one of the sellers to be the expert. So essentially, I'm trusting somebody else to make a decision for me in B2B when I'm buying. And sellers need to get that into their heads. Your job is to actually make the decision that the right thing for the buyer to do is to move forward with you to the next step. The right thing for them to do for them. After all, you're on their side, right? So you're a strong recommend recommender. I often say to people, even in a first conversation, we'll be talking about how their sales team talks to people or doesn't talk to people. And I'll get to a point of saying, you know, based on what you've said so far, my strong recommendation is that as a next step, we actually run a test drive, a free full day of production, just to find out, does Connect and Sell make any sense in your business? What does it feel like to use it in production? If it feels terrible, we've solved the problem. We don't have to go any further. If it feels great, but the numbers don't work, we can examine the numbers and see whether the issue is perhaps the skill of the reps or your list or something like that and decide whether there's a next step. But my strong recommendation is that we take this specific next step. I take the burden off the buyer of having to decide something in a world where it's hard to make decisions because there's so many alternatives, right? So you have these multiple issues working against you. If they weren't in sales, it'd be trivial. Sales would be the easiest thing in the world. B2B sales is quite the opposite of the easiest thing in the world. It's the hardest thing in the world. So how do you approach it as a salesperson well, you need to approach it knowing what's going on inside that buyer, which is they're afraid of taking this risk. And the best path for them in terms of safety is to do nothing, always. And by the way, often buyers will react negatively to the seller piling up more value or more urgency when they're actually indecisive. There's a new book out on the subject called The Jolt Effect. And it's uh, it, based on research that's been done with lots of video-based um, sales conversations that were analyzed with AI. And the realization is there are two reasons that folks don't want to move forward. One is they like the status quo enough. You haven't shown them enough value. The more common one is they're actually indecisive. And they're indecisive probably because their fear is driving them in the direction of no decision, which is safe. It's not the status quo that's safe. It's actually just not making a decision that's safe. So how do you work with them? How do you lower the risk? Um, a baby step might make some sense. A guarantee might make some sense. Them trusting you, you don't have that and you're doomed. I mean, you're shot, right? So that's how this stuff comes together. And from a salesperson's perspective, it's kind of like being a surgeon when you think about it. If you're going into medicine and you decide that you want to be a surgeon, one of the things you're going to have to deal with is it's unnatural. It's unnatural to cut into another human being in kindness. It's weird. You have to be kindly intentioned and cold as ice at the same time. How do you do that? We have to really respect surgeons. They don't faint at the sight of blood, right? You cut somebody open, you think that feels good when you're doing it? Even when you're learning on people who are no longer alive, 
it doesn't feel good. Now you're doing it to a living human being, right? Well, it's the same thing in B2B sales. You have to kind of cut that person open and do it with good intentions. And getting into that emotional state is very, very difficult and takes practice. This is why you'd rather have somebody performing surgery on you who did a surgery yesterday rather than somebody who's taking a couple of years off and they're hanging out in Mallorca or whatever. It's like, <laughs> hey, by the way, you're my first case since two years of vacation. Uh, let me sharpen my scalpel here, right? Even an experienced surgeon might not be able to get into flow. And, of course, you as the patient sure hope that they're in flow. So if they're fainting at the sight of blood or the handshakes, not good. So you as a B2B salesperson have got to condition yourself to be able to cut into that other person's emotions in kindness. So you got to be cold and warm at the same time. Not easy, but essential if you want to help somebody make a decision. And you're going to pretty much have to make the decision for them anyway. So how do you get to that point where you're doing that for the right reasons? One thing in B2B, and all of sales, but B2B sales, is if you go in with the attitude, they should buy from me no matter what, you're kind of doomed because they shouldn't. They sh There's a lot of circumstances where they shouldn't buy from. Right. That's why discovery is called discovery. Right. You're discovering whether you should take a next step together. You're not discovering that they should buy from you. That's a weird thing to discover. Right. Definitely not. That's a very interesting analogy between sales and surgery. You're basically doing emotional surgery is how you put it. So you're, you're running an operation. Before we close, you have a company called Flight School, which is powered by Connect and Sell. Can you talk a little bit about what Flight School is and how it helps salespeople build that trust and do that emotional surgery that you described? Sure. The idea of Flight School is pretty simple. It's really hard to learn to cold call. I mean, sales gravy is evidence that it's hard to learn to cold call. Otherwise, where would be that core, right? I'm looking over here. There's a book called Fanatical Prospecting. Fanatical prospecting is mostly about cold calling, and it's mostly about getting to the point where you'll actually do it, right? One more call. That's what, One more call. That's what Jeb says, right? So as, as you look at cold calling, it's got a lot of problems associated with it. One of the problems is until you can learn to use your voice under pressure, your voice is going to be a problem. Folks that you're talking to can hear insincerity and uncertainty the way that people say wolves can smell fear. So you've got to get past that. So how do you do it? Practice under pressure. What kind of pressure? Live calling. So Connect and Sell has the unusual capability of delivering lots and lots and lots of live conversations in a short period of time. One of the things about practice is the cycle time of practice is really important. If you're learning to swing a golf club or you're learning to play the piano or you're learning to do anything new, you need to do it. Somebody else needs to listen or observe. You need their feedback, and then you need to try it again. And through that cycle, eventually you'll get better. You may know that you're getting better, or maybe only your coach knows you're getting better. The coach is looking for first failure, not second failure, first point of failure, because all action takes place over time. I, I always put it like this. Everything we do that is learned is learned ballistically. We do one thing and then another thing and another thing and another thing. And each one that we do, each part of what we do is the setup for the next part. If the setup isn't good, then the next part isn't going to work and we're recovering. 
So in a golf swing, this is really clear. If you set up to the ball incorrectly with a bad grip, you're behind the eight ball to start with. So what does a golf coach do? They have you swing the club, but they examine your grip. They have you swing the club, but then they keep fixing your grip until the grip can support the swing. Grip, stance, takeaway, these go in order, and you get coached on first failure. And your cycle time to be coached is just a, it has to be pretty quick. Now, the problem with sales conversations is they're hard to get. They take a while. If you're dialing manually, you might get one real conversation every 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Is that fast enough that your body and your mind will respond effectively to the coaching you get after each conversation? In many cases, it's not. So in flight school, we compress that time using Connect and Sell, call it time to next conversation, down to about three minutes. And that way you can push a button, you can have whatever the coaching effect is settle into you from the last conversation, and then bloop, and you're on. And you're on unexpectedly, which is also good. You're ambushing yourself also. (laughs) So by ambushing yourself, you actually create an opportunity to be reactive yourself. You're learning to react. This is why, by the way, golf is harder than baseball in this sense. Baseball, I have to react to the pitch. If I have learned to react, my reaction takes care of my performance. Golf, I have to decide when I'm going to take the club back. So I've got to put something in my head that I react to to tell me when to take the club back, right? Well, in, in B2B calling, cold calling, if I have the, the connect and sell bloop. So with connect and sell, you push a button, you wait. System's back there working. It's dialing. It's navigating phone calls. It's hanging up on voicemails. It's navigating gatekeepers. It's doing all the grunt work, but you don't know when it's going to go bloop and have you talking to somebody. And they're expecting your voice because they've already said, hello, this is Chris. I expect the very next thing to be, hey, Chris, Ulysses here. Not, uh, I don't know what to say, right? So that is reactive, which interestingly enough is simplifying. Once you learn to react with the first part of your script, it's easier. It's easier because you have no choice. You know, it's go time. It's like, boom. So in flight school, we take the first three hours. So it's four three-hour sessions. Three hours is a lot of conversations. And it's normally 10 people at a time, 10 to 20, something like that. So the coach is listening to all the conversations through the Connect and Sell platform and has a coaching module. And they're listening, bum, bum, bum. When one of the conversations happens, they'll, list, they'll be listening for first failure point. They'll hit a button, talk to the student, and say, hey, next time when you get to this word. So say the opener is, I know I'm an interruption. And say the, the student has said, I know I'm a bit of an interruption. Well... Clear out that word a bit. Try it like this. I know I'm an interruption. Hammer the word no. Try it for me right now. I know I'm an interruption. Okay, just like that next time. And then they're back in the pool. And in three minutes or so, they'll be talking to somebody else. And the coach gets to hear that. And so you correct a little at a time going forward. The first three hours are dedicated to the first seven seconds of the conversation. So for three hours, you get coached on on seven seconds. Once you master the first seven seconds... You've mastered getting trust. Once you've mastered getting trust, you're a successful cold caller. You're done. 
basically the purpose of the cold call is to get trust because all the good stuff tends to happen later. The follow-up, the email, the come to your website. Maybe you get a meeting. That's great, but 95% of the time you don't and you want to take care of those. Put it all inside the trust envelope and then let it flow. Right? So you've now mastered the cold call in the first session. Now, what should the message be that comes after the trust part? So, you know, Ulysses, you say to me, when I say, this is Chris, you say, hey, Chris, Ulysses here from Sales Gravy. I know I'm an interruption. 27 seconds to tell you why I called. And you do that in a playful, curious voice that makes me want to follow along with you. You're offering a solution to the problem I have right now, which is, you know, like you. Right. So, and I can't see you right now. I can see you. So I trust you because this is human to human, but you're an invisible stranger inside my midbrain, baby. I want out. I want out. But you say something that lets me out down your path, which is just to say, sure, go ahead. Because why am I going to fight you for 27 seconds? That's crazy. Right. And I don't know why it's 27. So I'm curious. And curiosity actually gets people to take novel actions, and taking a meeting is a novel action. So I want to go down the curiosity path, not the value path. So when we're in flight school, our first three hours are getting to the point where we actually can get the curiosity message out, and we practice that in the next three hours, which are on another day. So it could be the next day. Normally, it's two days later or thereabouts. Everybody comes together again online. This is all done online. Coach is there. And now they're doing the same thing. It's always the whole conversation. They're just being coached on the first failure. Well, now they don't fail anymore in the opener. Some do. We call that drift. Right? Under emotional pressure, we drift to early practice. So our early practice might be to say, I know I'm a bit of an interruption. I call that the apology rather than throwing yourself under the bus. I know I'm an interruption. Like, you agree. I agree. We all agree I'm an interruption. We're done with that part. I see the world through your eyes. You see the world through my eyes. Man, are we done with that? Thanks, God. The bus goes, bump, 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 bump. We're run over. We're dead. Okay, now we're harmless. Let's have some fun. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? Let's have some fun together. Okay, so now we're going to have some fun. Well, what's the fun? Curiosity. So now we practice for three hours the curiosity part, which we call navigation. So we call this flight school because the first part's taken off the airplane. The second part's flying somewhere. The third part, by the way, is all covered in Jeb's book, Objections, one of the greatest sales books in the history of sales books. Anybody wants to get better at sales, first read Fanatical Prospect and then go immediately to Objections because you're freaked out by Objections anyway. And once you learn how to, how to ledge, and my ledge is fantastic, you say, Chris, I've never met a worse human being in my life. It's stunning to me that somebody as unethical and bad as you is calling me. I go, fantastic. Tell you what, I'm a morning person. Let's shoot for next Thursday and we'll move it around if we have to. I mean, really, that's my ledge, right? Jeb taught me that. I really appreciate it. So that's phase three of flight school. Another three hours just learning how to handle what I call the, I'll use my mother's word, the peculiar objections of cold calls. Because after all, the goal of the other person is to get off this call with their self-image intact. It's a strange goal. It's intact at all times. So therefore, we need to handle objections like, we're all set. Well, that one you got to not trigger. Because we're all set as an assertion based on superior knowledge. 
Oh, go to Anthony Iannarino's latest book, Elite Sales Strategies. He says, be one up. Well, if you let them say, we're all set, you're one down. They're now one up. They're claiming they know more than you do. They do know more than you do. They know their situation, which they're asserting, whereas you're asserting that there's something worth being curious about. Ooh, ooh, be careful. You're in the third grade playground now. We're all set. No, you're not. Yes, we are. No, we're not. Yes, we are. You can't get away from that. You're tussling in the dirt. The teacher is going to have to separate you. It isn't a good place to go in sales. So sometimes objections, one of them, needs to be avoided. And you avoid it by not getting too close to value. When you get too close to value, you're insulting the other person by insinuating that they're not doing their job very well. And they're waiting for a salesperson to call them and tell them how to do their job. Most people think they're doing their job pretty well, and they're not waiting for a salesperson to call them and tell them how to do their job. So when you say, we've helped companies like X, Y, and Z, and you're, you're thinking they're going to go, oh, that's just like me. It's like, why did they need help? I'm taking care of my own business. I'm doing pretty well. You did what? Right? So you have to avoid, and Jeb talks about this, I love on stage at, at Outbound, he talks about psychological reactance where somebody pushes back on you. You assert too much value, you get psychological reactance because you're basically saying you're not doing your job very well. You're not diligent. You're, you're leaving something out. What's wrong with you, right? Curiosity is a different, different path. It's an innocent path. Everybody likes somebody who's lucky. So say you're lucky. I believe we've discovered a breakthrough. And say it like that, I believe, like, listen to me, and then softly, we've discovered we're lucky. And who's we anyway? We can be curious about who's we. We can be curious about a discovery. But an assertion of we built, we, we're strong, we made something happen. It's like everybody backs away from that. I used to be a professional blackjack player. I lived in Las Vegas, played other people's money. Everybody liked me when my chips were all over the table. Why? Because I'm lucky. People like to sidle up to a lucky person. People like luck. They think it rubs off. There's actually a term. Mm. Luck rubs off. Right. It does not, by the way. Not statistically. I'm a mathematician by background. But psychologically, folks like it. They're attracted to luck. So be lucky. I believe you've discovered a breakthrough. Well, now i got to tell a story. So what's my story about? Well, it needs a hero. All stories need a hero. It needs some dragons to slay. Well, let's slay a three-headed dragon. Let's have one of the heads be economic, one of them emotional, and one of them strategic. Economic, time, money, you know, waste. Emotional, in business, almost always frustration. In business, we're always frustrated. We're trying to do something and do it well, and we don't have the support to do it as well as we want or the knowledge or something. There's something missing. And we hold ourselves accountable to high standards. Deming taught us this way back in the 50s. People work for pride of workmanship not to get paid. So, okay, my pride of workmanship is impaired when I am not doing my job as well as I hold myself accountable for. I certainly don't think it's something inside of me. I think it's something outside. I'm frustrated. Everybody in business is frustrated. Frustration is a wonderful emotion. Use it. And then the third part is strategic. They're trying to go somewhere. They're blocked. Does our offering perhaps unblock them? Maybe. We don't know. That's for discovery. 
We're trying to get into discovery to discover whether within the economic bounds and within the emotional situation they face, whether there's a strategic blocker that can be removed so they can get to where they're trying to go. Because everybody's trying to go somewhere. Everybody's trying to do a next thing. Nobody's just going, hey, you know what? I just want the business to run exactly tomorrow like it ran today in a changing world. That doesn't happen. Everybody feels that, you know, AI, whatever, the world is changing, right? Their world is changing. I guarantee you, every company is changing every day. Their overhead is eating up their money. That's a change. They are going to zero. They have to do something, sell more, go into new markets, something else, right? So those three heads of the dragon can be slain in the little story where the breakthrough is the hero. But notice that we didn't specify what the breakthrough is. Because if we do that, they're going to say we're all set. And we don't want them to go to we're all set because we don't want to go to the third grade playground. So it's a delicate dance. And to learn to do this, this is where the surgeon doesn't just learn not to faint at the sight of blood, which is the first three hours, but now they learn what the anatomy is like inside this person. You know, if you're a surgeon, you cut somebody open, that person's unique. They're not a model. They're themselves. How they're hooked up inside, you're a heart surgeon. How their arteries work to feed their heart is unique to them. And you learn that during the surgery. Well, this is the part where we're learning together whether this resonates sufficiently for somebody to take a meeting because this person is unique. Their company is unique. We don't know them yet. We're not going to find out in an ambush call. So should we take that next step together? Should they spend 15 minutes in order to learn more? That's the question on the table. If we put it in a curiosity framework, we have a shot. It takes three hours of practice to learn how to observe what's going on within the conversation sufficiently to get somebody to maybe accept the next question. By the way, then you got to tell them why you called. Hey, the reason I called you is to get 15 minutes on your calendar to share this breakthrough with you. Done, right? Jeb teaches a different way of doing this, but it's all kind of the same. It's like, what's the purpose? It's to make a decision as to whether to move forward to a meeting in which we're going to explore something together. And then we can ask him, do you happen to have your calendar available? And we can ask that in a playful, curious voice. As a matter of fact, we're not asking them to do anything. We don't know them well enough to tell them what to do. We're not their mom or something, right? But we can ask a question of fact. Do you happen to have your calendar available? Like, are you lucky too? <laughs> right? I'm lucky. We're lucky. We, the obscure we that you don't even know who we are, we're lucky. Are we so lucky that you're lucky and you happen to have your calendar available? Wouldn't that be fun is what your voice is saying. And you know, a lot of people will say, Sure. Some people will say, what's this about? Don't tell them what it's about. Because if you tell them what it's about, they'll say we're set. That's the one you've got to avoid. So you have to stick to your guns, which is you truly believe in the potential value of the meeting that you're offering. That's your product, is the meeting, not your product product. The meeting has to have value. Most reps cold calling could not tell you what the value of the meeting is. What is this person going to learn from this meeting that they can take away no matter what, even if they never do business? I've asked hundreds of reps this question. I've never had one of them say, oh, well, the three things they'll learn in this meeting no matter what are thing number one, thing number two, thing number three. 
They don't tell me that. So they don't know their product because the meeting is the product. You got to know your product. You got to believe in your product. The product is not, I get a commission. The product is this other human being is going to learn something of value from you or your colleague. If you're passing this off, say you're an SDR, you're passing this off to an account executive, whatever it is, you have to deeply believe this other human being is going to get value from this meeting no matter what, whether they ever do business with you or not. That way, you're staying sincere. As soon as you're insincere, it shows up in your voice. When insincerity shows up in your voice, trust goes away. So you got to believe. What do you have to believe? Potential value of this meeting in a learning sense for this human being under all possible outcomes. If you believe that, this is a very relaxing business, cold calling, because you're just offering potential value to somebody in a way that helps them psychologically get over the fact that you ambushed them and you're an invisible stranger. So you're kind of dealing with, I got to put you under before I put the knife in you. You know, <laughs> right, <laughs> sorry, right. it's just got to happen. My friend here, the anesthesiologist will get this job done, except you got to be your own anesthesiologist when you're a cold caller. And then you're kind of like, you're done. You handle their simple objections, and their objections have to do with well, – go read Jeb's book. It's full of stuff about objections, right? And then you ask in the meeting. That's kind of it. It's a four-stage process. The fourth uh, flight school session, three-hour session, is just asking for the meeting and sticking to your guns. And that one is really tough for folks because they feel like, well uh, – I feel like I'm telling somebody to do something they don't want to do. I feel like I'm wrestling them. All you're doing is sort of insisting that it makes sense for them to spend a little bit of time in order to get a lot of valuable expert information that may reveal that there's a next step or not. Who knows? It's a step we have to go through. So let's go through it together. Right? It just makes sense. But if you don't believe it makes sense, you're not going to be able to ask for it in the right way, and you're not going to be able to stick to your guns. So anyway, that's flight school. It's preceded by a messaging workshop. The purpose of the messaging workshop is to help the senior executives of that company or the sales leaders to get that a psychological framework is needed because of the nature of the ambush. Not because of any weakness on part of their reps, Anything about their company, really the message for their company is super simple. Ours is this. I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates the waste and the frustration that keeps your best sales reps from being effective on the phone or even using the phone at all. And the reason for my call is to get 15 minutes on your calendar to share this breakthrough with you. Do you happen to have your calendar available? That's it. Sounds easy. It's not. It's not. That little message, the waste, economic, the frustration, emotional. Notice that the frustration part, I can bring the emotion out of my voice. That's easy. When I say the word frustration, I sound frustrated. You feel frustrated. We're together in that moment, deep in your midbrain. Actually, frustration gets all the way to the really old brain. Frustration is why we lash out, right? Frustration leads to anger unsupported by the personal nature of the circumstances just it makes us angry right i was very frustrated yesterday trying to get my iphone and my rental car to talk to each other while i was navigating 
off to wherever I was going, to Evans, Georgia, in order to get a FedEx package sent somewhere. Right? I was frustrated. How does it come out? Anger. Right? You don't want to trigger anger, but you want to say the word frustration, if that's the emotion you've chosen, in a tone of voice that indicates you know what frustration means. It's very different from, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates, you know, the waste and the frustration that, you know, I mean, come on. <laughs> come on, you got a pipeline into somebody's midbrain. You deliver 28 emails worth of emotional information in the form of your voice, not the words. The words are tiny. The voice is everything right into somebody's emotional centers 100% of the time. Do that with the skill and the intent of getting trust, pave markets with trust, dominate markets. Life's easy. Breaking everything down into a science, into its constituent parts, focusing on it, honing it. I love it. For our listeners who want to get in contact with you, uh, get in contact with Connect and Sell, get in contact with Flight School, where can they find you? Well, connectandsell.com is a good place to start. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty easy. There's a little form. You fill it out, and we tend to get back to you. And uh, what our rep will offer you, if you're interested and interesting, is a test drive. And the test drive is full production use of Connect and Sell for a day. For one person, I, I did one with 108 people in it once in Dallas, Texas, uh, two days after Christmas one year. So we do little test drives, big test drives. They're free of charge, and they're crazy. They're so much fun. So that's one path. Another is go to my podcast if you're a podcasty kind of person, I have a podcast called Market Dominance Guys. It lays out the theory and practice of market dominance using the human voice. And uh, I don't know, episode 178, either we are extraordinarily stubborn or some folks like it. Oh, or, or both. Or both. <laughs> or both. <laughs> awesome. So everyone, be sure to find Chris on the web, connectandsell.com. Find his Market Dominance podcast. Also, don't forget to check out SalesGravy University, the world's most powerful sales training engine. We work with teams of all sizes from all over the world, helping them upskill, drive motivation, and keep up the morale of their salespeople. Just go to learn.salesgravy.com. That's learn.salesgravy.com. And if you've never taken a course before on the platform, you can take any course by using the code FREECOURSE at checkout. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Chris. Ulysses, what a great experience. I agree. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for joining us on the Sales Gravy Podcast. Mm -hmm.